0: Well, hello, everyone. Happy New Year to each of you. It is uh, it's great to start the year off together. Every time I preach the first weekend of January, I just like to highlight and shout out and say happy 100% weekend because we all have 100% attendance at church on the year. So well done to each and every one of you, especially this weekend with that, what's happening out there. So uh, well done and welcome to uh, 100 Percent weekend. Uh, speaking, um, speaking of a hundred percent, the last few weeks uh, weekends, I was up here sharing um, about our financial realities as we approach the end of 2023, and I want to give an update to each of you about where we are as a church community. On November 25th and 26th, Pastor James stood up here and shared that our faith goal and our target by the end of 2023 was 1.1 million dollars which is a huge number, an intimidating number, but a faith-filled number as well. And so church, I am absolutely pleased and delighted and honored that I get to be the one today to report that we not only met our goal, but we surpassed our goal. 1.3 million dollars came in, which is an unbelievable demonstration and practice of generosity and bless you. And may God, uh, may may you discover what God means when he says, test me and see what I can do as you trust him with your finances. And may God bless our community as we follow him and join Jesus in this new year. I can't wait to see what he has in store for us as individuals and us as a church family. So bless you and bless you. Um, Some of you know I'm a pastor's kid, um, which... uh I absolutely love, uh, truly. Um, one of the realities of being a pastor's kid is that I've heard my dad preach a lot in a lot of different contexts, and I've heard the same sermon a lot in a lot of different contexts, both around the city, around the world. Some of you know him. You've heard that as well. Um, but I truly, honestly, love being a pastor's kid. It's fun for me to look around the room and see people that I've known for nearly a quarter of a century and, like, worshipped with. Like, that's really special. I love being a pastor's kid, uh, I had an early love for the church, uh, and I'm very, very grateful for that. But I have heard him tell one story more than any other story. And it's become a story that's formed kind of my spiritual imagination and my landscape and how I long um, to not be, in a sense. And so I want to share this story with you. My dad said it a lot. It's from his favorite author. And it's the story of a man named Hank. And it goes like this. Hank was a cranky guy. He did not smile easily, and when he did, it had an edge to it, coming at someone's expense. He had a knack for discovering islands of bad news and oceans of happiness. He would always find a cloud where others saw a silver lining. Hank rarely affirmed anyone. He operated on the assumption that if you complimented someone, it might lead to a swelled head. So he worked to make sure everyone stayed humble, His was a ministry of cranial downsizing. His native tongue was complaint. He carried judgment and disapproval the way a prisoner carries a ball and chain. Although he went to church his whole life, he was never unshackled. A church deacon asked him one day, Hank, are you happy? Hank paused to reflect and then replied without smiling, yeah, Well, tell your face, the deacon said. But so far as anybody knows, Hank's face never did find out about it. Most often, Hank's joylessness produced sadness. His children did not know him. His son had a wonderful story about how he met his wife at a dance. But he never told his father because Hank did not approve Of dancing. Hank could not effectively love his wife or his children or people outside his family. He was easily irritated. He had little use for the poor. Whatever capacity he once might have had for joy or wonder or gratitude atrophied. He critiqued and judged and complained, and his soul got a little smaller each year. And then the author ends the story by saying this. What's the greatest tragedy of that story? Is it that Hank wasn't changing? Is it that Hank didn't realize he needed to change? Or is it that we in the kingdom of God can get so used to the grumpy Hanks of the world that we never really expect that they could or would increasingly reflect Jesus? in In the story of Hank, no church consultants or counselors were called to address the issue of the disciple of Jesus who never became more like Jesus. Perhaps, if we're honest, the greatest tragedy of all is that there is a little bit of Hank in each and every one of us. How do you shrink the Hank in you, At 100% weekend in 2025, how can you be less like Hank? How can you be sure that you will, in fact, be growing to love God more and be more like Jesus a year from now than you are at this moment? You know, showing up here each week is good and it is important, but it doesn't guarantee that we're changing or developing a vibrant faith that reflects who Jesus is. Showing up here doesn't change us or make us a vibrant follower of Jesus any more than being in the Saddle Dome makes us a Calvary flame. How can we be sure we're changing Be more like Jesus. In this series, Faith at Home, we are exploring how we can have a faith that sustains us, that lasts, and that changes us. And we're using Deuteronomy 6 as the foundation text. Pastor Carter and Sarah wonderfully taught us on it last week, setting the stage for today. But a little bit of a reminder um, or overview, perhaps. Um, While Hank isn't a particularly Jewish name, Um, when God led Israel to the promised land, there was a whole lot of hanks within the community of Israel. Folks that simply weren't changing. There were people who were walking and journeying in the community of Israel that saw God do incredible things. They saw pillars of fire and cloud lead them day by day by day. They saw food materialize from the sky they saw the sea parted, and they walked across dry land, and yet they still didn't have a faith that was forming and lasting and actually changing them in meaningful ways. They walked with and saw God in ways that most of us could only dream of, and yet they still lacked the capacity to have a faith that formed and informed their lives, So right before they entered the promised land, God gave them some insight, instructions, and directions on how to have a faith at home. Or in Deuteronomy 6, a faith for their new home as they entered the promised land. So let's dive into God's word and see what he says for each of us. Starting in Deuteronomy 6, it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, The Lord is one. Now, those words were the first prayer that Jewish children would have memorized. They would have said those words first thing every morning. It would have been the last prayer that they said at the very end of the day. It was a declaration that no matter what would happen in the day or what did happen in the day, the Lord is God, the Lord alone. And it was this declaration and commitment to understanding that God is the one who has all authority and he is sovereign and has supreme rule over all that goes on in this world. That verse is often known as the Shema because that's the Hebrew word for hear, Shema, Israel. But when it says hear there, it doesn't just mean like, hey, let the sound waves enter your ear holes. Shema means listen to these words and respond to them. Do something about what you are hearing. God is sovereign over all. He alone is Lord. What are you going to do about it? How are you going to respond? The fact that all Jewish children memorize this first In their lives, I mean, this would have been the first prayer that Jesus memorized, and he would have uttered and prayed these words over and over again, and perhaps that's why when, as an adult, someone asks Jesus, what's the most important commandment, he responds with the very next verse, which says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And then Deuteronomy 6 continues on and says, These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. It's hard to read through Deuteronomy 6 without recognizing just like the rapid succession of verbs, the action words here. Have it be on your heart. Impress these on your children. Talk about them. When you're sitting, when you walk. This was really like education saturation for everyone. Immerse your world. And whatever you're seeing, whatever you're doing, whatever you're going through, immerse that with, with these rules. If you're lying down, think about it. If you're getting up, process it. It's basically saying learn to incorporate these commands into every facet of your life. But there's also a trajectory here that I want us to notice it says, these commands that I give you today, they're to be on your hearts, the center of how you think and process and view and what you love. Have it be on your hearts. But then it says, end in your home. And then after your home, it says, write them on the door frames of your houses, on your gates, which was the society. There is this trajectory that God's word is to radically impact our hearts and then our homes and then the world around us in these concentric circles. It's our faith rapidly, radically shaping the concentric circles of our lives. We know that most of us are biblically educated way beyond our obedience, right? We know way more than we can actually do. I, I heard this week someone defined evangelicals as people who know more than they do. Whew. We're educated beyond our obedience. Most of us don't need to learn more as much as we need to learn to obey more with what we already know. And the goal of Deuteronomy 6, the goal of this passage is to remind us and teach us that there shouldn't be a difference between what we know and what we do. The Shema teaches us, reminds us, there shouldn't be a difference there. There should be alignment. And Deuteronomy 6 is really trying to teach us ways in which we can have that alignment happen. Now, if you've been to Israel, you know how literally these verses are practiced, how they are literally and physically embodied by so many still to this day. I remember years ago I was walking around Jerusalem and, and it, I was honestly caught off guard by seeing how these verses, these Deuteronomy 6 verses were practiced. Folks would have little boxes tied to their forehead because they're to be on our forehead. Called phylacteries, you can look it up. These little boxes would contain the words of Scripture passages of Torah on their forehead to remind them of God's word. Their outfits were designed and created in a way to remind them of God's word. They would would tie these words to their hands. They literally and physically embodied these passages. You, You couldn't walk through a door or a gateway without seeing God's Torah, the word being posted on the door frames and on the gates at shoulder height, at every gate. They're called mezuzahs. They practice these words literally and physically, and it wasn't designed throughout Jerusalem to be hard to miss. It was designed to be impossible to miss. And it was really challenging for me to see the ways in which These Jewish worshipers literally embodied this. Do we have practices that are not just like hard to miss but impossible to miss? You know, as as a North American modern day evangelical with more than a little self-righteous pride, seeing these things, it, it felt a little showy to me. If I'm being honest, but as I have continued to process that through the years and be humbled along the way, I've had the sobering reality that at least they had something a practice that was impossible to miss. Because I didn't, and I was inspired. We may think tying things to our wrists or to our forehead is too showy, but are we more successful in having impossible to miss practices? Are we more successful in incorporating God's truth in every concentric circle of our lives? Are our hearts being transformed? Are our homes, whatever that might look like, How about our spheres of influence outside of our homes? Are we better at loving God in all the circles of our lives? I'm an optimist. Um, I really think most of us want to have that be the reality. I think most of us want to learn better and better on how to love God with all we got in every circle of our lives. I believe that. I think we all want to be a little less like Hank, where we are growing to follow Jesus. I, I, I believe most of us want that to be true for us. I'm just guessing most of us wonder how that can happen. How can that happen in our lives? So I want to look at that for a moment. I remember um, very clearly after one of my very first sermons rookie preacher, uh, one of my very first ever on a weekend, and one of my preaching mentors was there, and, and he came up to me after. He's like, hey, you do, do you want some feedback? I was like, yeah, yeah, totally. I really do. And he's like, all right, think about plane." He's like, your takeoff was great, Kyle. That was really good. That was a good intro. That was awesome. Your, your biblical teaching, you, it was good. It was clear. You did your research. You, you did your, you did, you know, your exegesis was good. You, you said what the Bible said. You got to a really, really good elevation. But Kyle, when it came time to end, you never really landed the plane. You just kind of circled the runway and then fell out of the sky. You got to learn to land the plane a little bit. Bring it to earth. Help us know how this actually impacts our day-to-day life. And so today, I'm landing the plane. (laughs) I'm uh, going to look at how this can actually impact our day-to-day. How Deuteronomy 6 can be incorporated into our lives in a meaningful way. And I'm going to do that by going to an ancient practice that the church has done for millennia. And it's called the rule of life. I know that phrase can sound a little bit uh, intimidating if you're not familiar. Rule? What do you mean rule of life? It comes from a Latin phrase, regula, which means rhythm or a regularity of pattern, a recognizable structure. It came to be associated with a trellis, and if you know much about gardening, you know that a trellis is there to help a vine or to help something grow well. It does two things. One, it keeps the plant off the ground, away from predators, away from being stepped on. But a trellis also helps the plant grow and reach its maximum Potential and early Christians took this idea, this regula, this rhythm, this trellis to help put John 15 where it talks about abiding in Jesus, remaining in him, and they created and and practiced rule, a regula of life. I think Deuteronomy 6 is the first example of a rule of life, learning to incorporate God's truth in every sphere of our lives. But in the early church, the early followers of Jesus took Deuteronomy 6 and they they fleshed it out in new ways because they were living in a new time and period. And so I want to just give a little bit of the background of a rule of life. I think it will help us today as we talk about this. Long story short, I'm so glad my history prophet's here because he's going to love this, Eric. Um, for nearly the first 300 years after Jesus' resurrection, to be a Christian meant at best you're on the outside of society. It also meant at times, at worst, that there was severe persecution. You can read about it. Like Christians were caged and raised up above the streets of Rome and used as street lights when they were lit on fire. For the first 300 years, at best you were marginalized, at worst you were martyred. It was hard to be a follower of Jesus. It was hard to be a Christian for the first 300 years until 313. Everything kind of started to change at that moment. The emperor of Rome had a dream, and it was of a cross, and, and he made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. Beginning of the fourth century. Now, some people were like, hey, this is great. It's easy to be a Christian now. We're not being used as streetlights. We're not getting thrown to the lions. This is good. But there was a shadow side to this. There was a corresponding complexity that came with this challenge. Many Christians also saw this as not a helpful moment in any way because everyone in the empire kind of came to think, hey, I'm a Christian by default. I'm a good person. I live in this society. I'm okay. It became easy and commonplace to say, I'm a Christian. So much so that around this time period, Christians were like, it is way too easy to be a follower of Jesus in this empire. I need to make it more difficult for myself. And so Christians started to move to the desert to strip away the luxuries and conveniences and the easy parts about life because they recognized the impact of empire on their soul was not making them more committed followers of Jesus. They needed to prune away these things. And you can read about the desert fathers, the desert mothers in beautiful ways about how they were trying to ensure that empire wouldn't infiltrate and shade their souls. So they moved to the desert. Eventually, so many people started doing this. So many folks were moving out there that they were like, okay, we have to figure out how we're gonna do this. And then their lives became so compelling because there was this radical commitment to Jesus that people were like, by the hordes, going to the desert. And they're like, we need to create a regula, a trellis for how we do life together. We need rhythms and routines. And so that's where some of the early rules of life started to come into play. The first ever rule of life that kind of went viral was in the 6th century by a guy named Benedict. You can look into it. His rule of life has 70-something there. It's fascinating. But, but his rule of life that went viral happened and went viral at the time when the Roman Empire collapsed again. And I think it just helps us see in history, in our spiritual ancestors, that in times of transition and chaos and complexity, Christians throughout history have relied on a rule of life to help them navigate it. And I think in this moment, it's important for us to again rely on this. As society moves towards increased complexity and an unknown future, we must be careful not to get caught up in these tide shifts. To put it another way, as society moves towards chaos, we should move towards increased discipline. In times of unknown changes, we should rely on very known practices that orient us towards a known God. A rule of life is a practice that the church has done not just for like weeks or decades or centuries, but for millennia. And it's about forging a faith that forms and informs every sphere of our lives. How we are transformed to become more like Jesus, less like Hank in the year ahead. There's some really, really good thinkers and and pastors and leaders out there that have done a ton of work on this. One is Pastor Ken Shigematsu. He was here a few months ago. He's done some great work on this. Another is John Mark Comer. Justin Early is another. There's a lot through modern history, ancient history. And for our time together today, I have tried my very, very best to take what these great thinkers have put out there and to combine it in a way that is helpful for each and every one of us. So we can all craft a rule of life that will change and impact and influence us. Using their material, we have created a trellis for you, a rule of life template for you. And I want to walk through that together. Because I I don't want to just like circle the runway. I want to like land the plane. And walk through what? A rule of life might actually practically look like for us. Ephesians 4 defines and says, you know, God's given apostles and prophets, evangelists, shepherds, pastors, teachers. To do what? To equip the saints. And that happens in a whole host of ways. Um, One of the ways that I want to take that call seriously is to equip each and every one of us to develop a rule of life. And I would love to do this with each of you individually. I just, I wish that could happen. It can't. But we can just pretend that this is that. We're going to walk through a rule of life. Here's the starting point for us. You'll notice on the left-hand side, we could put, yeah, you'll notice on the left-hand side, there's practices. Prayer and silence. A daily rhythm of prayer. Scripture. A life deeply rooted in the Bible. Sabbath and stillness. A regular rhythm of Sabbath. Simplicity and generosity. So on the left hand side are kind of like the big buckets. Here's practices that we should embody as followers of Jesus. You'll notice on the right hand side, it's totally blank. Because that's where I and that's where you can put in how you can practice those things. What practices can you incorporate into your life to help develop a daily rhythm of prayer? Like I said, I, I, I went and I got as much resources and examples. I've got all kinds of examples on rules of life. If you want one, just email me. I can send you like five. Um, or you can Google rule of life. There's all kinds of examples. This is the one that works for me So that's why I want to share it with you. But I did go through a whole bunch of rules of life, and I just pulled out examples to try and get the wheels moving for you. So, first one prayer and silence. Some of the examples I've seen in different rules of life I'm going to pray every morning for five minutes before I look at my phone. That's a practice. Another one I saw is I'm going to do the prayer of examine every night, just process my day with the Lord. Another one is I'm going to practice silence in the car instead of podcasts. That works for someone. What could you do? The next one, scripture. Someone's like, I'm going to read through the gospel of John very slowly. Hey, that's a good practice. Maybe it's I'm going to read one psalm a day or one proverb. I don't know. Maybe it's going to, I'm going to read through the Bible this year. We've got an online group through a Bible app, our church, reading through the Bible in a year. You can join. You can, you can do that with our community. Read through the Bible this year. What practices can you do for Scripture? Sabbath and stillness. One person said, I will pick a 24-hour period of time, and I will change my pace, and I will have a meal with my family, and phones will be off. Another person said, I will put up borders and boundaries in my life that cannot be compromised for specific evenings in the week. Simplicity and generosity. One rule of life that I saw had three things under it. The first one was I will tithe monthly to the church. The second one was I will set aside $50 a month as a blessing fund. The person's like, I'm just going to put $50 in my wallet and I'm just going to keep it there. And every month, I'm just going to look for an opportunity to bless someone. What a cool practice. Maybe $50 is unattainable. Maybe it's 5 But could you imagine if you just had a practice of keeping change or bills on you, and you're just looking for an opportunity to bless someone financially? How cool would that be? And then the last one that this example had is I will talk to an accountability partner for any purchase over $100. What would your finances look like if you had that level of accountability? Someone, um, I know, their rule of life for simplicity and generosity is this. I will live as generously as I can until I feel it and it impacts me. Someone else says, I will tithe monthly and support international workers on top of that. What does simplicity and generosity need to look like for you? Those are the first four. The second four are this. First one, relationships, active participation in the family of Jesus, hospitality and helping, a lifestyle of Christ like hospitality and helping, vocation and mission, a pursuit of justice and peace in our activities, and then health and maturity. A pursuit of spiritual, emotional, and physical maturity. Relationships looks different for each of us. For some, the relationships that are most important are maybe you you have a partner or kids, and that's kind of your first circle of relationships. What kind of practices can you incorporate there? Maybe it's friends, maybe it's a, a Bible study group, maybe it's a home group, maybe it's a, a friend, I don't know. What what does active participation in the relationships of your lives look like? Hospitality and helping. One example I saw said I will have one meal where I host somebody a week. It might just be saying to someone at work, hey, do you want to have lunch together? You're hosting. Then helping. I'm gonna ask what can I do to help my church community reach one more person for Jesus? Hospitality and helping. And then vocation and mission. Not everyone has a job or an occupation, but everyone has a calling. Everyone has a purpose. If you're breathing, you've got a purpose. How can you incorporate mission? And what fills your days? How can you incorporate God's truth, God's word, justice and peace in your activities, whatever they may be, whether that's staying at home or traveling or a teacher or pastor, how can you incorporate mission into the sphere of your world? And final one is maturity, health and maturity. I saw a whole bunch of different examples under this. Maybe it's exercising. And maybe exercising isn't part of the normal. It's like, you know what? 100 meters a day. I'm going to walk 100 meters a day. That's what it was for me a year ago. When I got really hurt. I could only walk 100 meters at a time. That was, that was my exercise. Maybe it's more than that. Maybe it's I need to do 10 minutes. Or something, I don't know. Or maybe it's something like I need to book a doctor's appointment or a dentist appointment, take care of the body. Maybe it's, I, need, I think I need to talk with a pastor or a counselor. I don't know. What does taking one step forward in the stewardship of your physical, emotional and spiritual maturity look like for you? Hear this, every stage of life is different when it comes to rules of life. My rule of life looks very different now than it did when, you know, 10 years ago, five years ago. It looks different for each of us because we're all different. And and honestly, they should, rules of life should always look different because I hope one year from now, my life is different than it is right now. I hope I'm less like Hank a year from now, and I can incorporate different practices. They should be changing depending on where we're at, the choices that we've made. But I want to make that as accessible as possible. And so just so you know, if you text RULE to our church office phone line, it'll send you a PDF immediately. Because I think that a great practice this week would be to sit down by yourself with a loved one get that PDF, and just work on it. Also, on your way out, you're going to get one of these bookmarks, Faith at Home. On the back, there's a trellis, and there's a QR code. And if you scan that, it'll take you right to the rule of life. And you can work on that. You can create one for yourself. Uh, If you're not...